0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 228. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, we are now on part two of my series on Klaus Schwab founder of the World Economic Forum and architect of the so-called Great Reset. So, of course, go to com slash 228 to get all the links in this episode. And the previous episode is where I did part one in case you somehow missed that and stumbled on this. So you want to check that one out first. So let me dive right in and continue the train of thought. I, re- I realized after I released the previous episode I don't think I fully fleshed out my train of thought, so let me just go ahead and restate what I was trying to get across in that. So one of the catchphrases or the the slogan of the World Economic Forum is that they're the leader in public-private cooperation. And to many libertarians, that sounds scary because it's like, oh, no, no, These corporations are sitting here producing goods and services that the consumers value. And if they turn a profit, it means that they've transformed resources into products and services of more social value, correctly defined. And that's great. And so they're sitting here minding their own business, providing value to people. And then the big bad state comes along and starts interfering. And that's why, you know, we recoil in horror at this notion of a public-private cooperation because it means the state is now going to meddle in the affairs of these private businesses and boohoo. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's true. And, you know, that, that is a concern. But it also goes the other way, that when Klaus Schwab is talking about that, he is also wanting it to be that you've got these governments around the world and they have their little fiefdoms and multinational corporations are going to come along and start interfering with them. Now I know probably most of my listeners you don't endorse the legitimacy of those governmental structures and so any power they have you think is, you know, immoral and I'm going to agree with you I'm a philosophical anarchist of course. But still it's a very dangerous principle that the world economic forum is laying out. So let me Just to get you to see where I'm coming from here, let me go ahead and read a little bit. I found this very interesting article. The guy's name is Nick Buxton, and he wrote this back in January of 2016. The title of this is called Davos and its Danger to Democracy. And it says, we are increasingly entering a world where gatherings such as Davos are not laughable billionaire playgrounds, but rather the future of global governance, and so the picture here is interesting. It shows, you know, the World Economic Forum logo is in the background, you know, like, like on a screen that this is, you know, at some event, obviously, in, in Davos where they, where they host this stuff. And there's a group of people standing on the stage, like presumably looking out at the assembled attendees. And it's Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, what's his name? Tony Blair. There's Bono and African leaders as well. I don't know who one of the guys is, and so I'm, and I won't misstate his name, but it's clear that this is showing power structures from, you know, the business world, the entertainment world, and political arena. And so this is what the World Economic Forum is all about, where they assemble all these different powerful people from different sectors and bring them together. All right. And so let me just read a little, some excerpts from Nick Buxton's article here. It's an all too easy event to mock. It's hard to keep a straight face when the world's rich arrive annually in their private jets to the luxury ski resort of Davos to express their deep concern about growing poverty, inequality, and climate change. And then he links to, Jon Stewart had a real funny thing on this as well. I'll put the the link. I don't think I can do um, excerpts here because I might get dinged for copyright infringement or something, but anyway, it's... It's a funny daily show thing when this event went down, this particular one, and and Jon Stewart's mocking, you know, the, the press coverage of saying how all these assembled dignitaries are concerned about global inequality when it's literally there's billionaires at this event. Okay, so now that this is Nick Buxton, the real concern about the WEF, so that's the World Economic Forum, however, is not the personal hypocrisy of its privileged delegates. It is rather that this unaccountable invitation-only gathering is increasingly where global decisions are being taken and moreover is becoming the default form of global governance. There is considerable evidence that past WEFs have stimulated free trade agreements such as NAFTA, as well as helped rein in regulation of Wall Street in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So here, let me pause, folks, and make sure, you know, because some of you might be new to this type of analysis. So if you're a standard free market economist, you're all for free trade, right? And so when someone's saying, wait a minute, what? These people were responsible for free trade agreements. I don't like that. You might say, well, that's a good thing, right? Because the voters are dumb and they believe in protectionism. But we know from standard economics, we've known for centuries that free trade is the way to go. It makes everybody richer in the long run, at least. And certainly, you know, there's no principled reason. It's only helping some at the expense of others if you try to impose protectionism. And so you may be surprised to learn that people like Murray Rothbard also oppose NAFTA. Now, why would somebody like Murray Rothbard be against NAFTA? Well, it wasn't because he was against free trade. It was because what a lot of these free trade agreements would do, well, let me put it this way. If all NAFTA really did was give a free trade zone in North America, it would just be one page. And it would say, henceforth, or, you know, starting on this date, there will be zero tariffs between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Sincerely, you know, U.S. Congress and whoever. The other ruling bodies were. And obviously, NAFTA was much bigger than one page. And so, why is it? It's because it wasn't actually about free trade, it was about managed trade. And they do things in these agreements, or more general, not just NAFTA, but more general, like the creation of the World Trade Organization and stuff like that. What they do is they create a, I never know if it's supra or super national organizations. So that it's a, a hierarchy and it's a, a ruling body that is above the individual governments that were signatories to the original agreement. And so now it's like, oh, if the US has a trade dispute with Mexico and says, oh, hey, the Mexicans are dumping products you know, here that is in violation of this free, so-called free trade agreement. Well, now, so we want to be able to levy retaliatory tariffs on Mexico to be able to punish them. And, you know, so as you submit your case to these third-party organizations that then make the decision. And so it's, in a sense, ceding sovereignty of the individual respective signatory governments to this extra national organization that might not be accountable to anybody directly, right? That it's not that any voters had any say in putting these people in, in power, right? So that's the reason that somebody like Murray Rothbard was against NAFTA, it's not because Rothbard thought the tariffs made Americans richer or he wanted to protect automobile jobs in Detroit or something. It's that he didn't like the idea of the U S Congress ceding some of its constitutional authority to this international organization. And again, Murray Rothbard of course was a Rothbardian, believe it or not. So it's not that he thought the U S constitution was a valid document and that the federal government's powers so enumerated in the U.S. Constitution were valid and legitimate. But he was just saying, given that there is this power, at least if it stays in the United States in the hands of the Congress, every two years there can be a turnover. You know, if the people get mad and the politicians are corrupt enough, there could be a cleaning of house, literally, right? But that can't happen You know, the American people can't get fed up and just vote out the people running the World Trade Organization or who make rulings if it comes to an alleged violation of a provision in NAFTA. That's why somebody like Murray Rothbard would would object to it. All right. And so now this guy, Buxton, I'm guessing it's not that he's all in favor of free trade. You know, he works for or he writes for this thing called the TNI, which I think is the Transnational Institute. I can just get the sense from reading their thing, you know, they they're all about democracy and, and that sort of thing, so I think they're it's a progressive left-leaning organization. So the, you know, their objections are different. They believe in democracy and think, "Oh, the people can legitimately set trade policy and they just don't like that being ceded to somebody else." All right? So again, in Rothbard's view, putting up a tariff cuz 60% of the people approve of it doesn't make it right, but he really would not like the ability to set tariffs to be ceded to this international organization that has no accountability. All right, so that's that's kind of what's going on here. All right, so anyway, back to Nick Buxton's piece. He um, says, less well-known is the fact that the WEF since 2009 has been working on an ambitious project called the Global Redesign Initiative, which effectively proposes a transition away from intergovernmental decision-making towards a system of multi-stakeholder governance. In other words, by stealth, they are marginalizing a recognized model where we vote in governments who then renegotiate treaties, which are then ratified by our elective representatives with a model where a self-selected group of stakeholders make decisions on our behalf. And he links to, um, Klaus Schwab said in an interview that the sovereign state has become obsolete. You know, and I went and checked the link and he does say that. In that interview, too, I think is where I saw it, where Klaus says that the reason he's for public-private cooperation is because he thinks governments and corporations working together can achieve more than governments or business in isolation, all right? And so, again, this kind of goes back to what I was saying in part one, if you listen to that episode, where St. Klaus is all about power. That's just the thing for, you know, that it's not... Good or bad, it's just, you know, these are tools. And, you know, and you want to get something done, you want to change the world. Well, look around and who wields power and let's go get all those people on your team and integrate them. Now, what's interesting is this guy Buxton shows, and this con- not contradicts, but gives a little more nuance or, or detail. So I was saying in the previous episode how, in principle, Klaus is going to, you know, appeal to labor union leaders and other groups, NGO, but actually, Buxton's making the case that really the World Economic Forum is beholden to corporations, that the stakeholders that in practice they cater to are the major corporations. For example, if you look at the WEF's board as of when Buxton wrote this, that half of the board are currently corporate executives And if you look at their career history, then two thirds of them, you know, either currently are or have been corporate board executives. And only one member can be said to represent civil society. And that's someone from the Red Cross. So this is Buxton now. There are no representatives, trade unions, public sector organizations, human rights groups, peasant or indigenous organizations, students, and youth. Okay. And, you know, I could say Crobb's defense. He would probably say, well, because, you know, the people who head up indigenous organizations don't have any really power you know, in, in the world. And so why, you know, I'm not going to waste time making them part of the, uh, the board of the WEF. Okay, so let's see. Um, yeah, here's a good quote. So this is Buxton. This elite-led model of governance is proliferating globally like a virulent rash. The World Water Forum, the Marine Stewardship Council, and the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, or ICANN, which some of you have probably heard of, are just three of thousands of multi-stakeholder groups. They're becoming the default option for global governance, and there is nothing in international law to stop this. What WEF is trying to do is to turn these models into a multi-stakeholder governance system. As Herrick Gleckman points out, what is ingenious and disturbing is that the WEF multi stakeholder governance proposal does not require approval or disapproval by any intergovernmental body. Absent any intergovernmental action, the informal transition to multi stakeholder governance as a partial replacement of multilateralism can just happen. Okay, and so that's what I really liked about this article is there this guy Bucks, he's kind of just like screaming from the rooftops, like, hey everyone, do you realize? these people are just slowly and inexorably transforming the way governments around the world are implementing policy. And so again, it's not that Google or Microsoft or Pfizer in and of themselves have any power over people, right? If they're just corporations selling products, people can buy them or, or not buy them and that's whatever. But where the problem is, is if these corporations then get their fingers in, or their hooks, let's say, into the official channels of political power and then get those ostensibly or ostensible representatives of the people to then make decisions because, you know, really behind the scenes, it's these corporate interests are the ones pushing it. And then if all those policies from the different governments around the world are coordinated because all of these rich, powerful people are having periodic meetings in secret and the public has no access to what they talk about. And then that's how all these things get coordinated. And that, you know, the individual politicians or officials, you know, who aren't in elective office, but like they're the ones getting appointed to these things, even if they're so-called civil servants, if they know that once they retire from, quote, public service, then they're going to get these plush jobs as consultants or sitting on a board or whatever, and then they're, they're set for life. You know, that's a different thing. So it, this is the kind of thing that a leftist fears when they say that, oh yeah, corporations are taking over or hijacking democracy. This is the kind of thing they mean. And again, you can recognize the danger of that, even if you're not a fan of democracy. So even like a Hans Hoppe can understand the danger of things like the Bilderberg Group or the World Economic Forum or whatever, and these people meeting together, the media giants and Internet, you know, tech companies and whatever, and big banks and oil companies and whatnot all meeting behind the scenes and setting this global agenda, that's creepy stuff. Even like I say, if you're somebody who is against democracy per se and you understand that you and you believe that, yeah, democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for dinner, kind of thing. You know, so you can we can all recognize the problem with democracy per se, but that doesn't mean if some corporate interests hijack democracy through stealth, that that must be a good thing. You know, that could be even worse, arguably. Okay, let me see if I can... This Forbes article was pretty good, too. I liked it. So where Schwab says that the nation state is obsolete comes from a 1999 Forbes article with the title Power Broker. So I like that because that's what, how I referred to Schwab in part one of this and so I like how this person also came up with the same label so this is how this Forbes article so who's the author of this why does does Forbes not say who the article who the author is okay I don't know Okay, so today we are having lunch with a prime minister. Well, not really, but Klaus Schwab, 61, and this was back again in 1999, wields that kind of power. As president of the Geneva-based World Economic Forum, he brings together once a year 1,000 chairmen and chief executives of the foremost global companies with another 1,000 world leaders, scientists, and journalists. It's a hot ticket in a cold place, Davos, Switzerland, and quite a concentration of power. Schwab explains the purpose of this get-together. Quote, I recognize that neither business alone nor government alone can accomplish as much, end quote. Put these two power centers together, though, and they can accomplish a lot. So here's why I wanted to read this to you, folks, so you can see an example, or some examples of the kind of stuff that Schwab and his network does behind the scenes. Okay, so again, this is from a 1999 Forbes article. In 1982, the forum, meaning the World Economic Forum, was a catalyst for the Uruguay round of trade liberalization talks that ultimately led to the creation of the World Trade Organization. In 1988, Schwab's behind-the-scenes machinations got Greece and Turkey to agree to stop bickering. In 1990, the forum accelerated German unification by bringing together the heads of East and West Germany. In 92, Schwab brought Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk together for their first meeting outside of South Africa. In 94, Schwab's forum witnessed the Palestine Liberation Organization's Yasser Arafat, and the Israeli foreign minister, Shimon Peres, holding hands in a manner of speaking. And that's not including all the murders that were made, factories that were built, and investments that came about because of meetings at Davos. Quote, it's the one place where globalization is being advanced, end quote, says John Bryan, CEO of Sara Lee. Okay, so, and you can see with a lot of those things, they're not even necessarily bad, right? It's, you can understand why so many people are On board with Schwab and also people who, you know, I think a lot of big corporate executives, you know, people who are very talented, intelligent, they run a tight ship in terms of their own organizations. And they can see how nutty their their own domestic governments are and how stupid the regulations are and whatnot. And they can also realize that the public is very fickle and you know, not trust them, you know, not trust populism. And so you can see how a lot of these intelligent, very accomplished, efficient people, many of whom have a scientific mindset, would find it appealing when someone like Klaus Schwab comes along and says, hey, here's a vision where a technocratic elite is going to behind the scenes coordinate all of government policy. And yeah, yeah, the politicians, the face of the governments will have to tell the people that this is in their interest and they're doing it and that they're not being manipulated by us, but it is in the public interest in the long run because we're going to foster peace and prosperity and, you know, just look at the world right now. Look at what happens when the people elect the representatives and they go implement, quote, the public will. Look at how with the disaster. You know, what's a better model of getting things done, the U.S. Congress or Microsoft? Give me a break, right? And so you can see why people would appeal. And this, it kind of reminds me, if you ever read Stephen King's novel, The Stand, you know, when there's a super flu that goes around that was created in a government lab, hmm, so there's like two camps among the survivors of, you know, of the humans who are immune to the, this lab-created virus and that story. And there's like the good guys and the bad guys. And I think the bad guys, the leader's name is Randall Flagg. And so Stephen King, he's explaining that a lot of the scientific engineering types preferred like the order in the bad guy society. And, you know, he, and he had real strict rules. And if somebody stepped out of line, boom, you're dead. Whereas, you know, the, good people were more open-ended and there were like, there's like an inner circle that were kind of the leaders, but they weren't coercing people because, hey, they believed in freedom and stuff like that. So it was more loosey-goosey. It wasn't as orderly in the good place, you know, what we might call the free society. I don't know if Stephen King called it that. Whereas the, you know, Randall Flagg's community was real top-down hierarchical, but it was orderly. And and he was, Stephen King, again, was explaining why a lot of, you know, technically savvy people were attracted to that, and that's why they went there. Even though, you know, they might have said, "Yeah, the Randall Flag—he's kind of cutthroat, and you don't want to cross him because he'll kill you." But you know, I still would rather live here. So, am I saying Klaus Schwab is Randall Flag? Well, I don't know that he can hover off the ground because Randall Flag could, but he may eventually once he gets the uh, appropriate appendages that the Fourth Industrial Revolution is ushering in. Okay, so that's what's going on here, and so now I'm coming back to the end of, I like the way Nick Buxton wrapped up his article. The group's proposals all followed a similar template, advocating for policies that liberalize trade, increase production, encourage corporate investment, and help expand agro-industry's control of food. They pointedly ignore issues of distribution and waste or the need for democratic access and control, da 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 Moreover, these groups systematically sought to close down multilateral spaces such as the UN Standing Committee on Nutrition that actually examine these issues. No wonder longtime food sovereignty activist Flavio Vicente calls this corporate capture a life grab, which threatens the achievement of food sovereignty and the full emancipation of women. The result, so here we go. The result is that we are increasingly entering a world where gatherings such as Davos are not laughable billionaire playgrounds, but rather the future of global governance. It is nothing less than a silent global coup d'etat. Okay, and so the re- again, the reason I like this was because clearly Nick Buxton and I do not see eye to eye on most things, right? That when I look at Klaus Schwab's agenda, I'm not concerned that, oh no, he's usurping the UN Special Committee on Food Sovereignty. Obviously, to me, you want to have agriculture in the hands of, private interests, and that's how you're going to maximize food production and keep wheat prices low for the average consumer, just like, hey, under Stalin, they tried to collectivize agriculture, and it didn't work out too well, did it, right? So we're clearly coming from different starting points, but we both arrive at the conclusion that Klaus Schwab is up to no good, all right? And again, you can see the the different perspectives and, and why, but this is what is happening. And so as I pointed out, in part one, really what this is, it's, it's fascism, like, like old school. That's what the definition of fascism is, or, or one of the key components of it. And what's a little interesting is the question, you know, is this socialism? Cause I've seen people refer to the globalists, you know, and their socialist agenda. And I don't, you know, it's hard to say. So there's a fee article that I'll link to that says there's no denying the socialist roots of fascism And then the subtitle says, fascism is a form of socialism as such. It does not engage in a fight between left and right, but between different leftist ideologies. There's some stuff in here too about like Mussolini and how, let's see, is this actually Mussolini? One of the founding fathers, and this isn't Mussolini, this is someone else saying fascism is a form of socialism. In fact, it is its most viable form and just like, obviously, you folks know, I'm sure, that Nazi, what that actually stands for is National Socialist, okay? So, you know, the Nazis themselves, in their very name, were a form of socialism. And certainly Mises, when he described two different modes of socialism, he said there's the Russian method and then there's the German method. And in the German approach, it was, yes, there was nominally private ownership on paper, right? So it's not that Hitler literally expropriated all the shopkeepers and said, no, I own your businesses now. But through various codes and regulations and whatnot, effectively, you know, the Third Reich took over all business, certainly all industrial production in Germany, you know, when that regime was in power. So at what point is it interventionism versus socialism? We can talk about that. And and Mises famously told Rothbard once that it was if there's a stock market then it's, it's just intervent, You know, it's still capitalism and just a heavily mixed economy, possibly. Whereas, you know, if it's true socialism, they won't even permit private ownership of, of companies. All right, so that's what Mises gave as the criterion. But in any event, where I'm coming from is, I think there's distinct groups out there vying for power and they all have similar interests. And so they kind of work together on certain things. So for example, the people who founded BLM at least I think two of them, I may, I don't know of all three of them, they openly admit that they're trained Marxists, right? And so clearly they're socialist, but Klaus Schwab is not a Marxist, okay? And they're just, they're very different people. And so they all have an interest in like stopping somebody like Trump, right? So why don't, why don't they like Trump? Because he can't control them. They don't like populists and that's why they want to hobble the United States. So they both have an interest in, you know, having the U.S. be subservient in a climate change agreement and have to pay hundreds of billions of dollars in green penance to, you know, African nations who have to modernize in the face of rising sea levels and blah, blah, blah. They are all on board with that, you know, like an actual Marxist because they don't like the capitalist West and they want to hobble it. And somebody like Klaus Schwab because he doesn't like strong independent governments, right? So the United States has to be reined in, it has to be broken and made subservient to these more globalist organizations, because you can't, you know, every once in a while, the American public are going to get uppity and elect somebody like Donald Trump. And so you can't have it that when somebody like Trump gets elected, the US is still an independent nation state that can do whatever it wants. You want to have it all hemmed in and locked in with all these different entangling alliances and whatnot, so that the US president actually isn't that powerful a position anymore. So that's why both, you know, genuine Marxists who hate the capitalist West and technocrats like Schwab and his associates would all work together to, you know, further the US's horrible legacy of slavery and whatnot, and Europe's colonial past and the legacies and da-da-da that's why they would all be pushing that stuff in tandem is because they realize those are methods by which the public will go along with shackles being placed on their own governments. Okay. But they're different groups is what I'm getting at. And I also think that like the Chinese communist party is a distinct organization that has different goals from the people on the W E F. And so they work together, like, you know, their goals overlap in many respects, I think, but I I think they're different and we shouldn't just lump them all together and say, oh yeah, this is the socialist takeover of America. I think you need to be more nuanced about it. Okay, so that's my little uh, side tangential lecture there. Let me spend some time now talking about this global redesign initiative that Buxton referred to. So in 2010, the World Economic Forum... Here, I'm reading from this. This is a press release after the fact. It said, on May 30th and 31st of 2010, we convened a meeting of experts and policymakers for an informal working laboratory to discuss a set of proposals coming out of a process known as the Global Redesign Initiative, or GRI. A significant number of the proposals received positive feedback from governments and other actors at the meeting, the Global Redesign Summit. During the summit, we asked participants to answer the question, quote, if you could redesign the world, what would you do? End quote. As part of the Davos debates in Doho or Doha, you can watch a selection of their video replies in the playlist embedded here. Dah, dah, dah. Okay. So now they have this 604-page PDF, which of course I'll link to, that is the Global Redesign Initiative. And the cover of this thing says everybody's business colon strengthening international cooperation in a more interdependent world report of the global redesign initiative. And they got the world economic forum branding. And then it says uh, as like a subtitle or underneath the world economic forum logo, it says committed to improving the state of the world, the global redesign initiative. So it's the kind of thing where if on the front of the report, where they're saying they're openly discussing how they want to redesign the world, they're telling you we're committed to improving the state of the world. Maybe it's because they're not, you know, it's sort of like if somebody like if a plumber, a guy dressed as a plumber showed up at your house and he said, by the way, I'm not a serial killer. Can I come in and look at your pipes? You might think, why are you telling me that? That's kind of disconcerting, right? And so I think it's a similar thing here that the fact that they're putting on the cover here, oh, we're doing this because we want to improve the state of the world to me suggests that, you know, they doth protest too much. So anyway, let me just give you a sampling of what's in this thing. So it's a bunch of different agenda councils, global agenda councils on these various things. And one is like they want to have business leaders take an oath, sort of like the Hippocratic oath that medical professionals take to do no harm. They want to get something like that going for business executives. And what they're doing for children. So again, one of the things is the the global agenda council on the welfare of children. All right, and so let me just read to you this thing, give me a sampling of this kind of stuff. The council's recommendation is that organizations report on the progress they make on children's issues using the Global Reporting Initiatives framework, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of this stuff, it sounds innocuous enough, like companies should um, make efforts to do an outreach in the community to get children more involved. So like if their employees make donations to child-friendly organizations and the companies might match them, stuff like that. Oh, okay, fine. But here's, listen to this. So in a section in this thing called Extending the Corporate Sector Duty of Care, let me just read you some excerpts from this section. Furthermore, the council, so again, they're talking about the council, like, you know, like the Jedi Council, like this is the global council, global agenda council on the welfare of children. So again, the WEF convened many such councils, global councils, to do these various things in a thing that's described openly as their initiative to redesign the world. Okay, so here you go. Furthermore, the council wishes to challenge the corporate sector to examine how far their influence can reach. At the World Economic Forum annual meeting in January 2010, the council aimed to discuss with business participants the most viable ways in which the corporate sector can audit their performance as actors who influence the lives of children. Blah, 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 To track a company's progress in investing in children, the council proposes developing an assessment tool and a reward scheme that has the potential to enhance a company's brand and acknowledge significant corporate achievement in this field. The council advocates that all strategies adopted need to be transparent, inspiring, transformational, and participatory. The reward scheme could involve the award of a kite mark, and then in parentheses, seal of approval, that would enable the company to project its achievements in investing in children. This is an example of how companies can meet the challenge of supplying radical thinking, creative solutions, and collaborative action in support of children in the context of the Global Redesign Initiative. Okay, so this report is full of stuff like that, where they're coming up with all these you know, proposals and things, and the way they're going to quote enforce it is the companies, they have to come up with like standard uh, uniform benchmarks and things, and then some outside agency... That the WEF sets up, of course, will then look at the corporations and give its seal of approval or not, and then the you know the companies can advertise and say, hey, we got the seal of approval. And da, da. so again, with all this stuff, it's like if it were purely voluntary and there were no levers of government coercion involved at any stage, it would be fine. And in fact, you know, advocates of a voluntary society—that's the kind of way that we do think standards would be enforced. That hey, we don't need the FDA. You could have private watchdog groups or private, you know, ratings agencies could just employ doctors and other experts and just say, hey, do we think these pills are safe or not? And is there a seal of approval or just like Underwriters Laboratory can do, you know, testing of electrical products. And if you don't have that UL seal on there, I wouldn't buy that thing and put it in your fuses box, right? So that's fine. These private voluntary certification organizations. But again, the problem here is they're all tied into the various governments and so it's not, strictly speaking, voluntary. And so if they get their foot in the door with some coercion over here, then they can leverage it and do all this other stuff, you know, over here and lean on these corporations who's in. So it could be the kiss of death if you don't have the seal of approval from the WEF. Hey, folks, just a quick note. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. I thank you in advance. Okay. One last thing I want to mention with this stuff is I'm going to link to it. There was an interesting article that I saw someone link to. It was from Harper's back in 1983 about the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, which is sort of like the bank for central bankers around the world. So the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of Japan, they all bank with the BIS. And that's how they have their clearinghouse operations. And so this article from 83 is just saying that this is like the informal meeting area where all global central bank policy gets coordinated. And one of the things that caught my eye in that article was the person said that there's like this inner circle. So even among the official members, there's an inner circle. And the thing that ties all of those people together is that they all acknowledge that their duty is to the other central banks and the global financial system, not to their respective governments who technically appoint them. You know, and so this is what people have in mind when they talk about globalism or the globalists and, you know, doing things that are outside of national sovereignty. And you can see it from their perspective, right? Again, if you're a real sharp person and you're dealing with your counterpart and, the ECB or whatever, and you, you know, you guys are both PhD economists, let's say, and real sharp or whatever. And then, you know, your respective governments are leaning on you to cut interest rates and inflate in order to get the person, the prime minister reelected or whatever. You can see that, well, that's not good policy. That, that's irresponsible and blah, blah, blah. And so that's why we need to have joint coordinated activity. And, you know, we need to have euro dollar swaps and blah, blah, blah. But again, the problem is that there's a political process that gives them that monopoly. And so, and this goes back to, uh, you know, it's interesting how much sway and how successful these central bankers have been in conditioning the public where the feds independence is considered a really important thing. And anytime a president, you know, certainly when Trump was doing it, but even if Biden does it, it'll, it'll, you know, some of the press will get mad that, Oh, The Fed chair is supposed to be able to make policy, you know, obviously with the FOMC committee and such, without being influenced by politics. You don't, you know, the president shouldn't be leaning on the Fed chair to to do things one way or the other because that would interfere with the Fed's independence. And so it's weird because the Fed is not independent in the sense they have been given all sorts of privileges by the U.S. federal government, right? The Fed is not simply a private organization. It's not just any old bank it has been given tremendous privileges by the federal government. And so it's funny that yet they maintain that, oh, but we should be able to set whatever policies we want without elected officials telling us anything one way or the other. And famously, I, I've mentioned this in many of my speeches to the public or presentations to the public. I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast, but when the when the bailouts first happened, so this is the end of 2008, right? The, the financial crisis hit in the fall of 2008. And the Fed started doing, you know, all these emergency programs and lending, setting up these maiden lane corporations to do lending and blah, 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 to buy so-called toxic assets. And Congress called Bernanke in for a hearing. I think this was in December of 2008, maybe it was late November. And at that point, I don't remember the numbers, but it was many, was it hundreds of billions, but I think so, of dollars, like in short-term loans, through like the i think it was like the TALF and stuff these lending facilities that the fed was setting up these emergency lending facilities and all these different banks were taking advantage of it and they were all anonymous like you know to the to the public like we so we couldn't even tell and so the congressional officials you know the, that were on the relevant committees for overseeing financial stuff we're saying to Bernanke, look at we're not questioning your judgment. Of course, you can do what you got to do you, that you think you need to do to save the global economy, but you're making, you know, billions of dollars of loans to these private banks. So can you just tell us who these recipients are? You know, because as members of Congress who are sitting on these relevant committees, you know, we kind of think we should know at least that you're giving billions of dollars in loans to companies. So who, who's getting these loans from you? Well, money you're creating out of thin air. And Bernanke actually told them. Well, no, I, I'm not going to disclose the names of these borrowers to you because that would defeat the purpose of the program, right? Because his rationale was if the public knew that this particular bank, for example, came to the Fed behind closed doors and got whatever, you know, an overnight loan of $300 million and they kept tapping that credit line over and over, well, then the public would panic and think that bank was in trouble and they'd withdraw their deposits and then the bank would be finished. And so... Bernanke's point was, I, I'm not going to tell you. So it was just funny that they were that he was telling Congress. Not only do I get to set whatever policy I want, and I can go ahead and lend billions of dollars to private companies. I don't even have to tell you who's getting the money. Right? And this was deemed a good thing in the financial press. Like, ah, yes, you know, Bernanke gets to run Fed policy without these meddling politicians. Okay, so again, this is obviously I'm not for the Fed, and I'm also not for you know, I'm not a greenbacker. I'm not saying it would be good if Nancy Pelosi was running monetary policy, but there is a strain of thought that says, you know, and I don't know if if Joe Salerno actually said this, or he was just sympathetic to it when he was talking about modern day greenbackers. But his point was, at least if Congress were running the Fed directly, and the public didn't like the policies, they could just vote those people out, whereas there's a lot less accountability the way it is right now. And so now this is me talking again. I certainly don't like the IRS, but imagine if Congress created the IRS so this entity that had the the power to take your income from you, you know, to set tax brackets and percentages and that's how much you, quote, owed. And, you know, whoever the head of the IRS was could just set tax policy that year with no accountability to Congress. Like this, in other words, Congress created the IRS and gave it the power to take your money out of your paycheck. But Congress was not directly involved in setting the, you know, the actual rules about, well, here's what the tax brackets are and here's what the percentages are. And the head of the IRS you know, had this publicly respected principle like, no, 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 the IRS needs to maintain its independence from Congress. The last thing in the world we would want is Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell to be telling the IRS how much money to take from people. Imagine, you know, no, we need smart, trained economists and, you know, public finance experts to be in charge of tax policy. And so the IRS needs its independence from Congress. And so then it was this organization just sitting over here in, in the middle of, you know, left field where nobody at the organization was placed there by an election. And yet they could take the people's money, right? That would be kind of nutty. And that's not because I'm in favor of oh, a democratically controlled IRS is great, so that's what the Fed is like right now, where they have the ability to print legal tender money, and they can approve banks and whatnot and you if you try to open up your own bank outside of the Fed system, it's illegal, they'll shut you down with the police power, and yet they're allowed to set policy and not even tell Congress what they're doing, and that's viewed as a good thing because they're independent, right so it's an it's an interesting System that these international bankers have set up. And like I say, behind closed doors, they have an understanding that the most sophisticated of them don't take their orders, you know, from their own domestic governments, that they know they're part of this global club where, oh, you know, we're smarter than these people and we need to set policy on the basis of, you know, the global financial system. Okay, so why don't I go ahead and spend the remainder of this episode going through some excerpts from the fourth industrial revolution. So I already gave you the, the most jarring quotations last time where Schwab is talking about microchipping people. <laughs> and he said in a real nonchalant manner, let me just mention. So the book, it's really what it is. It's sort of like a copy and paste of a bunch of different, I don't know if, if, if white paper is the right word, but reports, let's put it that way that the world economic forum has put out. And it, it's kind of, uh, there, there wasn't careful editing of this thing. Like, I think they just kind of packaged, slapped slap this thing together and put it out there. And just for, for example, like on some of the, later on in, in some of the potential impacts or tipping points, or I think they call them deep shifts, you know, they would give pros and cons. And then on some of them, they had pros, but they didn't have cons. And I, I don't think it's because they were saying there was no downside. I think it's just, they forgot to put that in there and stuff. And then in a different one, they would have like the same thing for one of the shifts, deep shifts, would be listed as a pro. And then in another, later on, that, that exact same wording was listed as a negative or a con for a different one. And, and I don't think it's because, oh, for some reason in this context, it's, no, I, I just think they got mixed up, right? So there's, there's little things like that. There was a lot of um, small typos, like things that should have been adverbs were not. And so I don't know if that's because Klaus you know, not being a native English speaker wrote it one way and then the editors didn't catch it. So I'm just I'm just mentioning that this thing was on the surface, it looked real impressive. But when you actually went in and read it, you could see they kind of slapped it together and it kind of had the same feel as the the videos on the YouTube channel, the WEF, where it's real polished and professional looking if you just glance at it. But then if you sit down and actually start watching the thing, you can see that the content really is lacking. And that I, I said last time, you can see that people are, literally reading off a script, you can see their eyes going back and forth. And it's, you know, and they're just using a lot of buzzwords and stuff, you know, talking about stakeholders and, you know, sustainability and blah, 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 corporate responsibility and you know, just throwing a lot of buzzwords. There's not too much content there. So that was kind of my reaction overall to this book. Let me just give you some insights here, some excerpts. Okay, so right from the introduction, let me go ahead and read this. This is the very first sentence. Of the many diverse and fascinating challenges we face today, the most intense and important is how to understand and shape the new technology revolution, which entails nothing less than a transformation of humankind. And then later in the introduction, he says, governments and institutions are being reshaped as our systems of education, healthcare, and transportation, among many others, new ways of using technology to change behavior and our systems of production and consumption also offer the potential for supporting the regeneration and preservation of natural environments rather than creating hidden costs in the form of externalities. A little bit later, the complexity and interconnectedness across sectors imply that all stakeholders of global society, governments, business, academia, and civil society have a responsibility to work together to better understand the emerging trends. A bit later, this volume is intended for all those with an interest in our future who are committed to using the opportunities of this revolutionary change to make the world a better place, right? So he keeps using that kind of language throughout that basically don't let a crisis go to waste. It's like the flip side of that. Like, hey, everything's going to be changing here because of new technology and the intersection of all these different trends. So we need to step in and grab the bull by the horns and let's make sure that we channel this redesign, you know, to serve humanity. And so he says a little bit later, the more we think about how to harness the technology revolution, the more we will examine ourselves and the underlying social models that these technologies embody and enable, and the more we will have an opportunity to shape the revolution in a manner that improves the state of the world. All right. And then, so what does he mean by the fourth industrial revolution? I'll say this. It's not only about the smart and connected machines and systems, its scope is much wider. Occurring simultaneously are waves of further breakthroughs in areas ranging from gene sequencing to nanotechnology, from renewables to quantum computing. It is the fusion of these technologies and their interaction across the physical, digital, and biological domains that make the fourth industrial revolution fundamentally different from previous revolutions. All right. This is from page 12 and 13 the great beneficiaries of the fourth industrial revolution are the providers of intellectual or physical capital, the innovators, the investors, and the shareholders, which explains the rising gap in wealth between those who depend on their labor and those who own capital. It also accounts for the disillusionment among so many workers convinced that their real income may not increase over their lifetime and that their children may not have a better life than theirs. Okay. And so, you know, this is also a recurring theme and here. So I think, this explains a lot of the support. You can see a lot of these billionaires are supporting things like the guaranteed income, basic guaranteed income guarantee, or the big, you know, the Andrew Yang's proposal. So is it Elon Musk? I don't want to say it because in case he's not on board with it, but I know there are some of these billionaires that are in the public limelight that are talking about, hey, technology is changing with AI and everything. Pretty soon, so-called low-skill human labor is going to be rendered obsolete or even in some cases, relatively skilled labor, as long as it's a a narrow thing that, you know, a machine could be programmed to take over. And we got to get ahead of that curve. We we, we can't have billions of dispossessed people who no longer can earn a subsistence wage once robots basically are doing their their former jobs and they never need to sleep or eat. And so that's where they're coming from. And so the, the world they're envisioning is one where, There's lots of people who are just sitting at home, living in the metaverse, getting checks from their governments to support themselves. They don't starve. And machines do all the basic work, you know, grow all the food and everything and make all the cars and and the the cars aren't owned. Of course, they're, it's like a Uber model, except with Uber, the driver tends to own the car, but no, it's an Uber model where some company owns the fleet of cars that are self-driving. That's the vision they have. So you as an individual citizen might not even work and just sit at home, get plugged into the metaverse where you live in a really tiny apartment. So you're not taking up a big carbon footprint. And if you got to go somewhere physically, which is probably going to be discouraged, but if you had to, it's not that you go get in your SUV, obviously, that would be very wasteful and harm the environment. Instead, you just request a ride and then some hover car comes and gets you and you hop in. And you certainly don't own that thing. All you're doing is renting its services, right? And that gives rise to Klaus Schwab's famous line where he said in the future, you'll own nothing and be happy, right? He really did say that. This is after the Great Reset. All right, how about this, how about this excerpt? So this is from page 23. It is in the biological domain where I see the greatest challenges for the development of both social norms and appropriate regulation. We are confronted with new questions around what it means to be human what data and information about our bodies and health can or should be shared with others and what rights and responsibilities we have when it comes to changing the very genetic code of future generations. Okay, so with a lot of this stuff, he's doing a lot of boilerplate things. that, oh, yeah, yeah that's, you know, anybody talking about this stuff is like, well, you know, as we get to be able to alter the human genome, we got to wonder, it's one thing to, you know, if the baby's going to have Down syndrome to go ahead and tinker with that so the kid comes out, you know, without that issue. But it's another thing like can parents to say, oh, I want a baby boy with blonde hair and blue eyes and who's six two. and can you go ahead and program designer babies? Is that okay? You know, and, and that's fine. But then again, it's when you have it in the context of everything else that Klaus Schwab is up to, it's creepy, right? When he says this is going to alter what it means to be human coming from him, that's kind of creepy. Okay, how about this one? It's from page 28. One of the biggest impacts will like result from a single force, empowerment, how governments relate to their citizens, how enterprises relate to their employees, shareholders, and customers, or how superpowers relate to smaller countries. The disruption that the fourth industrial revolution will have on existing political, economic, and social models will therefore require that empowered actors recognize that they are part of a distributed power system that requires more collaborative forms of interaction to succeed. All right, so to somebody who has no spidey sense, they might think, oh, that sounds good. And what I'm saying is the way to to interpret that is, again, this group of people who, have, who are sitting on these international organizations, they do not like the superpowers. They don't want there to be the United States as a behemoth striding around the world because, again, every once in a while, the American people might go rogue and elect somebody that the Republican and Democratic establishments don't like, like Trump. And so the way to contain that is to make it so that there aren't superpowers that they're all hobbled in and, oh, they recognize. No, no, you're not. You can't just set your own agenda as the United States. You need to recognize that you're just a member of the global community and you have all these responsibilities and commitments and we're all interdependent. And that's why you need to sign the Paris Climate Agreement. And that's why, you know, you need to be part of the World Trade Organization. And that's why you need to be part of NATO. And that's why, you know, it's horrible that Great Britain wanted to leave that nexus and Brexit was just such a terrible thing. Because don't you realize we're all multi-dependent? Blah blah blah, right? Because by having all these group powerful countries being part of these larger organizations that have been captured by the technocrats—that's how this small group of people can control everything, right? That's my interpretation of that. Yeah. And so just to follow up on that theme, so this is from page sixty-seven. He says, "In this section, I explore the role that governments must assume to master the fourth industrial revolution." Blah, blah, blah. This is particularly important as it occurs at a time when governments should be essential partners in shaping the transition to new scientific, technological, economic, and societal frameworks. And then a little lower. So thus far, like, you know, normal libertarian types are sure. It's they a standard libertarian. Whoa, government encroaching on private business, bad. But then a little later, he says, governments must also adapt to the fact that power is shifting from state to non-state actors and from established institutions to loose networks. So again, I'm, I'm saying he's, I think, trying to undermine, and this is what that Buxton guy was talking about, is they're trying to shift the public away from thinking that, oh, the way things work in our world is we vote for politicians who then go pass legislation that affects our lives and to more, oh, well, there's, you know, corporations and governments and NGOs and stuff are part of these multinational organizations they're just kind of there and they're organic and they do things and that's kind of what shapes the world. And,
1: you know, they just kind
0: of who, who knows where, what makes them make their decisions and I don't know. Yeah. So here's how Klaus sells it on page 69. Ultimately it is the ability of governments to adapt that will determine their survival. If they embrace a world of exponentially disruptive change, and if they subject their structures to the levels of transparency and efficiency that can help them maintain their competitive edge, they will endure in doing so, however, they will be completely transformed into much leaner and more efficient power cells, all within an environment of new and competing power structures, all right? So picture Klaus behind closed doors talking to the heads of state of like medium-sized nations, and he's telling them, this is what the future is, folks. You know, look at, look at your uh, economy. You know, we've got CEOs here who, have, who run companies that earn revenues that are triple your GDP, right? If you want to be on board with us, if you want to have a seat at the table 10 years from now, you better play ball with us right now. And so here's, and he slides across the Davos agenda, you know, here's what you need to do to play your small part in getting us to achieve the world we want 15 years from now. So are you with us or not? And that's, I think, what's going on behind closed doors, things to that effect. Okay, the last thing I'll do here, and I'll wrap up this episode, folks, is let me just read from this section. It starts on page 97, and it's about the individual. Okay, like I say, this will be the last thing I'll do. There's plenty of stuff I I marked up in this book, but I think I'll err on the side of less is more. The fourth industrial revolution is not only changing what we do, but also who we are. The impact it will have on us as individuals is manifold, affecting our identity and its many related facets. Our sense of privacy, our notions of ownership, our consumption patterns, the time we devote to work and leisure, how we develop, blah, 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 blah. It could lead to forms of human augmentation that cause us to question the very nature of human existence. Right. So when people talk about more about the transhumanist agenda... Again, they're not just making that stuff up. That's not something Alex Jones invented. They are literally quoting what these people are saying is what the future is, okay? Again, in case you missed it, the fourth industrial revolution, Klaus says on page 97 of this book, could lead to forms of human augmentation that cause us to question the very nature of human existence. Okay, and a little bit later, he says, as a result, we may witness an increasing degree of polarization in the world marked by those who embrace change versus those who resist it. And this gives rise to an inequality that goes beyond the societal one described earlier. This ontological inequality will separate those who adapt from those who resist. The material winners and losers in all senses of the words. The winners may even benefit from some form of radical human improvement generated by certain segments of the fourth industrial revolution, such as genetic engineering, from which the losers will be deprived. This risks creating class conflicts and other clashes unlike anything we have seen before. All right, and then a little bit later. As an engineer, I am a great technology enthusiast and early adopter. Remember, Klaus has got a PhD in engineering as well as economics. Yet I wonder, as many psychologists and social scientists do, how the inexorable integration of technology in our lives will impact our notion of identity and whether it could diminish some of our quintessential human capacities such as self-reflection, empathy, and compassion. All right, so I'll stop there. I think I've given you guys enough to see that he's saying, yep, This stuff is going to transform what it means to be human. Eventually, humans are going to augment themselves with technology such that some will even doubt that those people are human anymore. And it's going to cause a great divide between those who go along with these new changes and those who resist. And, um, you know, regrettably, it's going to lead to a clash. And you can see which side Klaus is on. He's on the side of the people who are going to augment themselves. All right, I will stop there. We'll have more. We'll have at least one more episode on Klaus Schwab. And I will see you next time for links for what we've talked about today. Go to Bob slash two, two, eight, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit Bob